So are your brains teased or are they frustrated? Both. You did your job. All right. <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, here we are again, ready to uh, learn, ready to glean from God's Word, and ready to be taught. Um, grateful that you all are here. We really don't have any announcements today except just pay attention to the uh, daily schedule. Oh, the 5K is today at 2.30. Um, since it's such a beautiful day, too, if you're not running in the 5K, it'd be really cool to go along the route somewhere and just cheer people on and, you know, at the finish line even and just, yeah, go, go, go. So there are papers up here. If you're coming in late, I will try to see your face. Go ahead and just have a seat and I'll bring them to you. All right, let's uh, open in prayer. And then we'll let Joel have his time. God, we thank you for today. We thank you that you saw fit to give it to us. God, as your word says, this is the day that you have made. And God, our part is that we rejoice and we be glad in it. So, Lord, for those of us that are struggling to rejoice and for those that are struggling to be glad, God, we're going to trust you to move in and turn that around. God, I pray that whatever it is that is weighing heavy on our hearts and our minds, that uh, you would um, help us to shift that away, not, not push it away, not forget about it, but get it back just a few steps so that we can step in front of it and not have it be a hindrance to hearing from you this morning. Holy Spirit, you are most welcome in this place, and I pray that individually each of us say, Holy Spirit, you are most welcome in our space. And so, God, open our hearts, open our eyes, open our ears, and teach us. We're ready to be taught. Thank you for Joel. Thank you for his willingness to come and be a teacher. Thank you that you have um, opened his eyes and his ears to your parables and that he's able to uh, help us understand them and to hear you and to see you more through them. We give you these next moments, and we ask you to do what you will. And we, God, I hope each person in here would give you permission to work inside of each heart in the way that you see we need. So, Lord, I ask that the words of Joel's mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing unto you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning, everyone. It's... It's a delight to have you in the tabernacle once again, and uh, Ellen has note outlines and, more importantly, the puzzle uh, for this morning. Were these challenging for you? They get worse, trust me. The neat thing about these sorts of puzzles is when you hear the answer, you, say, you almost kick yourself saying, oh man, I should have got that. Oh, nuts. How did I miss that? All right, and my goal is to try and fool you to see if there's one that I can run past and nobody gets, but hasn't been the case so far. Let's see. A1, what is it? Sent to the office. Yeah, see, they get worse, like I said. Perfume sent, and then the office, you see two of those. Sent to the office. A2, remember, I'm a teacher, and A2 is a little trickier. Oh, no end to teacher's plans. Close. Teacher's lesson plans. The word plans is less the N. Teacher's 
lesson plans. Is that a hard one? Yeah, it's a groaner. Yeah, <laughs> Dee Dee says, I like mine better. Okay, you're going to feel better about A3. Oh, yeah, you said that with gusto because I got one right. Well done. Did anybody get A4? Well, what, what, what is next to the Edward education? And then what size is it? It's, it's, it's mini. Minister for education. Minister for education. Makes complete sense. You'll feel better about two or B one or B one. T four two. With me? Okay, you got the next one too, didn't you? Royal Highness. Good. How about B three? Okay, get me to the church on time. Uh, by the way, which musical is that from? Very good. We've got some music lovers. My Fair Lady, when we, uh, our youngest son and daughter-in-law live in Brooklyn, so we took them to see Lion King on Broadway. This was the very same night that the vice president was at Hamilton, and remember, got chewed out from the stage. We were just down the street watching Lion King. Do you have any, and by the way, Lion King tickets never go on sale. Well, they're on sale. <laughs> they're never reduced. I think, I think we got them for $130 a piece. Yeah, Dad took us, took four of them. So it was fabulous. It's coming to South Bend this next year for this tour in the country. Lion King is. Okay, uh, B4. Seasons greetings. Get it? That's pretty bad. Seasons greetings. C1 is probably the hardest. Wow. Hot po potatoes. Eight O's. Hot, po, and there's eight O's. Hot potatoes. Who said that? You win the cookie. Nice job. Well done. <laughs> yeah, I didn't get the other ones. Okay. I, I thought that was the one that's going to go through. C2. What was that? Two words under Hamlet. Actually, it's play on words is right. Nice job. C3 is a clever one. Okay, you see, you see the word pals, correct? And it's stuck inside what word? And what are pinnacles? High, really high places? Friends in high places. Friends in high places. <laughs> Don't encourage him. <laughs> C4. No. Um, okay, which part of the word am I emphasizing? The back part of it, correct? Because the first part's empty. So, it, so it's, the, it's the end of each of those words. Actually, it's the tale of two <sighs> am I going too quickly for some of you I know this is tale of two cities oh. it's the tail end of the words 
<laughs> All right, D1. Top Gun. Tom Cruise movie from yesteryear, very, very good. Uh, D2. That's it. Burning the candle at both ends. Good job. D3. Good job. Drinks are on the house. D4. Archbishop. Well done. E1. Good job. See, that's the only one I got. <laughs> you didn't get E2? Wet behind the ears. Yeah. Uh, E3. Underground Railroad. Did anybody get E4? Well, first of all, what's that round, goofy-looking thing? Good. That's a bomb. Where is it located? In the middle of what word? Bulls. So it's a bomb in a bull's snowman. I'm just reporting it. A bomb in a bull's snowman. Abominable snowman. All right. It's only there's. It's we only have one place to go from here, beloved. <laughs> yeah, this is what teachers do. I've got far too much time in my hands. Yeah, this is what a special ed inclusion teacher does at Niles High School during prep. All right. What I'm going to do, if you've got your biblical text with you, um, now you've got the passage there, but I'm actually going to begin reading. This is chapter 20, beginning at verse 1. And remember, chapter and verse designations did not come until years later. They're not inspired. Uh, and so the whole biblical text just kind of runs together, not chronologically necessarily. So... I'm going to begin reading the last verse, and this is something you'll not have seen before. The last verse of chapter 19. You ready? Last verse of chapter 19. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Chapter 20. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning, and by the way, I'm going to have you interact with the text, so get out your pens or pencils. He went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. This guy owns a vineyard. We'll talk about the geography of that in a moment. He agreed to pay them what? A denarius. Okay, denarius, Jewish money. They also have shekels, and that's what they use to this day. Uh, circle the word denarius. For the day, work day was 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Because remember, the day ends at 6 p.m. So on Thursday, you'd see people rushing around after work and on, because at 6 p.m. on Thursday, what happens? Shabbat, Sabbath, I'm, I'm sorry, Friday, 
because Shabbat, Sabbath, is Saturday. But it begins Friday night at, 6 p.m., at sundown, 6 p.m. So that's when the day ends. About 9 in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. And he told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. Isn't it interesting? The first group, he said, you're going to get what? Denarius or denarius. Second group, I'll pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went on again at about noon, and about three in the afternoon, and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, how far is this from quitting time? Single hour. He went out and found still others standing around and asked them, why, haven't, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. And he said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the five o'clock dudes first, and then going backwards. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received what? Wow. So when those came who were hired first, they expected what? To receive more, but each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I, I, I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I'm generous? So, the last will be first, and the first will be last. Why did I begin reading the text in chapter 19? Because this parable has identical bookends to it. It begins in chapter 19 with Jesus saying, the first will be last, and the last will be first. It ends with the very same statement. Have you ever noticed that before? So apparently, apparently, the parable is Jesus explaining what he means by that statement. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Now, it's very difficult. This is a tough one. A lot of... Uh, preachers and teachers avoid this parable because this is a tough one to figure out. But again, Jesus said they're going to be hard. You're just not going to be able to figure these things out easily. It's going to take some thought. You've got to kind of drill down on these things. Uh, they can be challenging. I mean, the Lord's instructions can be challenging. Reminds me of a guy in my church. His name was Dave. I'm not going to give his last name because this is being recorded. 
uh, Dave decided that he was going to be kind to his wife. Dave was not a cook. And he went, you've seen these things before. He decided to get a box of uh, Jiffy Mix, and he, he said, I'm, you know what? I'm going to surprise my wife, and I'm going to make her blueberry muffins. So she said, boy, those sound great. That's wonderful, Dave. You're just this great husband. So he was in the kitchen, and he, and he was out there just for the longest time. Now, I'm not sure that, I don't know that much about making Jiffy Mix blueberry muffins, but it can't be that difficult. And so she, she could hear him in there getting frustrated and, and, and just sputtered and spitting and everything. And she goes in there, and he's got, he's got all, all the, the dry powder in one pile and these little blueberries. You know, these things are probably a little bit bigger. They're about the size of maybe a pea, maybe a little bit smaller. In a never, different pile, and he's taking a spoon. Remember, these blueberries would be dried. He's taking a spoon, he's flattening them out. And then with his fingers, he's bending them together. And she said, David, what in the world are you doing? And he goes, I'm just following directions. Read it. It says here, fold in the blueberries. Several men in the audience that are going, it makes complete sense to me. I don't understand why everybody's, why everybody's laughing. Fold in the blueberries. Instructions can be difficult to understand. This parable is a classic example of that. The Lord's teaching, his instructions on this are challenging. Now, the key to understanding the phrase, the first shall be last, the last shall be first, because there's, apparently there's some sort of equality about this, that, that everybody wins type of thing. You know, if, if last place is first and first place is last, everybody ties. Everybody's In order to understand this, you've got to understand, here I go, um, the geography and culture of what's happening. And, I'm, and this is kind of the way I teach and preach because I'm kind of a geography buff. So here we go. Once again, you can see how it's sandwiched in between here. So the parable is giving us light on what he means by that. All right, here we go. The geographical setting. You've got to understand this is the, the stage on which the biblical story is played out. God could have put the holy land, the promised land, anywhere on the planet. He could have put it in Argentina. He could have put it in, in uh, Nigeria. He could have put it down in Australia. He could have put it anywhere he wanted. He put the promised land in Israel. And by the way, he did that for a reason. This country of Israel is the only place on the planet, you know what I'm going to say here, where three continents converge. Did you know that? The only place where three continents come together, Europe, Africa, Asia. Their touch point is Israel. He who controls Israel controls the world. 
Because if you want to take over the world like Alexander the Great did, or like the pharaohs did, you have got to control that piece of property. And so what you've got is that when, the, when Egypt came to power, they would come up the, uh, the, the coastal plain, and I'll explain that in a moment, and they, they have got to establish Israel as the staging area by which you can then move to Asia or up to Europe. Alexander the Great, you've got to control that. Besides that, all of the trade routes go through there. The spice route, the Silk Road, not to confuse you with the dark web Silk Road. All of those trade routes. So he who controls the trade routes, militarily, you've got to hold this area economically. That's why God put it there. It's not simply called the promised land because God promised it to them. It's called the promised land because if you're going to live there, you've got to trust in God's promises. Because everybody wants it. That's why it was in that location. I used to think that when I'd read battles in the Bible, that these guys just decided they just like to beat the tar out of each other. That's not the reason. They were doing that for a reason. They were establishing, because if we can control that area, economically we can control the trade routes. Militarily we can control the world. And so God put them in a very vulnerable position where you had to trust him, see? You had to trust him because of, of invading armies. Now, because of that, great, Israel, let me show you, if I, if I showed you a map of Israel, I'm going to turn it sideways at a, at a cutaway view, okay? We're going to look at a cutaway view. You've got the Mediterranean Sea right here. And Israel starts, the, uh, the, the, the coast right here is my hand. This is called the coastal plain. It's flat. It's at sea level. And so you've got all these armies going up the coastal plain. As you go up a little bit further where my knuckles are, you get in what's called the Shephela. These are the hills. At that point, you go to elevation. If you look at a map of Israel, the center is at elevation. Jerusalem is at elevation. By the way, the only international capital that does not that is not on a main waterway. The only international capital that does not have an international airport. In three weeks, we're not flying into Jerusalem. You can't fly into Jerusalem. It's, on, it's in mountains. You fly into Tel Aviv, and then you go up, you go up your, which is on the coast, where Jonah set sail at Joppa, that's Tel Aviv. And then from, you go up into the Shephela, which is the hill country, and then up to elevation to Jerusalem. Well, once you're at elevation in Jerusalem, it drops off. And that's called the Rift Valley. Lowest place on the planet, Dead Sea. So it goes all the way to elevation, and it, drips, it drops off. Israel's the size of New Jersey. Within one hour, you can, be, you can be snow skiing on Mount Hermon and drive and be sunbathing at Haifa on the beach. It's a very compact country. So what you've got here is as you get into the hill country, you've got, you've got U-shaped valleys. That's where you can do regular agriculture. As you get up into the at elevation, altitude, you've got V-shaped valleys. So, grain was grown in the valleys. This would be stuff like wheat, 
flax, barley, corn. That was grown in the valleys. However, vineyards were grown in the hillsides. Now, I'm going to show you a picture here that I took. This is an example. This is just off the coastal plain. I'm on the coastal plain, and I'm looking across, and you can see this is a U-shaped valley. In the distance, you can see the hills, the Shephelah. This happens to be the Elah Valley. Does that ring a bell with you? What is the Elah Valley famous for? You are looking at the location where David slew Goliath. What would have happened? Not I should have brought my pointer. What would have happened? See the hills in the distance? That's where Saul and his troops were. They got home, home court advantage. They're up in the hills. And it says that this valley was filled with hundreds and hundreds of chariots. And for every, every morning and every night, Goliath came out and began yelling and shouting and doing trash talking. Remember? For 40 days he did that. Why didn't the Philistines just attack the Israelites? Chariots don't do hills. See, even unless you understand the geography, you can understand why there's a stalemate. And so, wisely, Saul stayed up in the hills where you can see up there. And again, if I, I could show you right where the brook was, it's, the brook is still there. And you can actually walk the brook where David found the stones. And we brought back sling stones. Uh, Bible says in the book of Joshua that they could sling a stone at a hundred yards and hit a hair. In the military battles, they did not fear archers or crossbowmen. They feared slingers. Because I've seen guys do this. They would sling this thing and they, they would go boom. Uh, I don't know my belt. I, I don't know I take off my belt. They go Boom, load, boom, load. About the size of a cue ball traveling 100 miles an hour. Now imagine Goliath getting hit in the forehead by a billiard ball going 100 miles an hour. That'd cross your eyes. See? Now imagine you get a whole bunch of those guys, right, side by side. <laughs> I mean, these guys, this is where it happened. Point is, this is where grain is. This is where you do grain in the valleys. However, you get up into the, into the hill country. This is up near Jerusalem. This is, now you're at elevation. And you, can, you can probably tell there's a valley there. Those are V-shaped valleys. You cannot grow grain up there. Not much will grow up there. An occasional fig tree. But the only way that you can subside is shepherding. So Israel becomes, depending on where you live, the land of the shepherd and the land of the farmer. Land of the shepherd, land of the farmer. That is why it's called the land of milk and honey. The land of milk, and what do crops produce? Bees. Honey. That's where the phrase comes from. You've heard the phrase, you just didn't know what it meant. Land of milk and honey. So now this is, so the only thing that you can do at elevation is shepherding or vineyards vineyards number two vineyards that's the growing of grapes it was it's extremely labor intensive 
When you develop a vineyard, again, you're at elevation. You just don't say, I just think I'm going to, I'm just going to plant a vine right here. Well, erosion is going to take it out because you get the root system is kind of a different kind of root system on, on vineyard, on uh, grapevines. So what they do, they had to terrace the ground. So it looks stair-stepped. Well, imagine what you have to do. You got to, you got to, Dig out the terrace. You, you got to build up with a retaining wall with rocks. You got to bucket up dirt, and so you can get this step look. In other words, this is what it looks like. Now imagine on the side of a mountain doing that. Extremely labor intensive. Now, once you do that, and notice, you see, how do you grow crops? Well, you can grow vineyards at elevation. So once again, Mediterranean, coastal plains, Shefela, and you go up here, this is what happens in terms of the, uh, the hydrology. That's the study of water. The hydrology of Israel is when the Mediterranean, when the water and the clouds and all the, that comes off the Mediterranean, coastal plain, it gets all kinds of rain. The Shephelah gets rain. But when you hit the mountain, what happens? It, they're, they're so high, the clouds stop and they dump right there. What's on the other side of the mountain? It's called the leeward side. The leeward side of the mountain, it's drought, hence the Dead Sea. So when you get on the eastern side of the mountain that goes down to the Dead Sea, there's nothing. And so they, they had to figure out how are we going to, with the hydrology of the land, how do you water the, the vineyards? Answer, do. You'd be shocked at the number of times the word do is mentioned in the Bible. And it's always the dew of Mount Hermon. It's always mentioned as a blessing from God. And so what they would do, if you look carefully, they would leave rocks in the vineyards. Don't remove the stones and the rocks. Why not? Because the dew will form on the stones and rocks and water your vineyard. Napa Valley has begun to figure this out. They have discovered if you irrigate vineyards too much, you'll get root rot. Guess where the, 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 um, the, the wine uh, connoisseurs and the, the people who grow wine in Napa Valley, guess where they've gone to figure out how to do dry cultivation of vineyards? Answer, Israel. So what's going on here is... This guy owns this vineyard. It's extremely labor-intensive. Number three, because of that, you need lots of workers, particularly at harvest time. Vineyards, grapes are harvested around June. You have got to, and when they come, you got to get it off the vine. Why? Because otherwise, they're going to fall. They're going to rot. They're going to be susceptible to animals. Or when the rainy season comes, you're all, it's, it's done. So, what they've got, you just got to, boom, you got to get a ton of people in there at harvest in June, which is just, what, a month ago. And they, by the way, they still grow some of the best wine in the world. It comes from Israel. And so that's what's going on there uh, in terms of just the, the geography of it. Okay, the cultural background. 
we've got to understand not only a little bit of, of the geography, but the cultural background. The man doing the hiring owns the estate. He is the owner. It's mentioned at least two to three times. Verse 15, he goes, don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? So the, the man, the main character, is the owner of the estate. And obviously, he would represent God in this parable. Secondly, notice that the owner returns again and again. Unemployed day laborers were the lowest class of society. These would be homeless people. They don't have regular jobs. So what they would do in that culture is that you would go to the town square early in the morning and hope somebody hires you. Now, what were they promised? What were the early, the 6 a.m. guys, what were they promised per day? Extreme, this is something you're not unaware of, but it's extremely important to the story. That's an extremely high wage. Roman centurions earn a denarius a day. They're at the top of the heap, by the way. If you had a slave or a servant who took care of your affairs, for example, think Joseph in the house of Potiphar. That's a denarius a day. So that is an extremely, extremely high wage. So you're a homeless guy. 6 a.m., a guy shows up and goes, would you come work in my vineyards? Oh, yes, of course. I'll pay you a denarius a day. They did a double take. Nobody gets paid that kind of wage unless you're at the higher echelons of society. See, that's what's going on here. Number three, the owner returns again and again. Basically, every three hours, he went there, at, the Bible says it, at 6, at 9, at 12, and at 3. Those are called the watches. Those are designated time frames in Israel. Often they're referred to also as the time of prayer. Peter and John were, un, were on their way to the temple at the time of prayer when they saw a man crippled there, remember? At the time of prayer, those three hours. Well, if you go 6, 9, 12, 3, you can't do 6 because that's quitting time, so we had to back up an hour to 5. That's what's happening here in the story. Now, from the way it sounds... He doesn't necessarily need more workers. Rather, it appears that he does this because of his kindness. He is so concerned these men were unemployed and had no one to hire them. So it was out of the goodness of his heart. Notice, he doesn't tell the other guys what he's going to pay them. He says, I will pay you what is right. He does the same thing in verse 4, verse 5, and verse 6. Now, when he gets to the guy, 5 o'clock, guys, they were standing there all day long. It's not that they were lazy. They've been there since 6 a.m. But nobody's hired them. That's what they said. Why are you still, why are you here? Nobody has hired us. In other words, we've been here and nobody's hired. Then you come work with me. You come work for us. So what do we learn? Here's the application. We are all desperate people in need of one 
who will be compassionate and who will invite us to come. Isn't this good news? One of the first lessons we learn is that all of us are needy people, completely at the mercy of one who can offer us mercy. We long for someone who will come and give us a call that we might have purpose. That we might work for purpose and give our lives to advance his purposes. So I think when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like this, what he's saying is, I, will, I have placed a call on your life to come and work and advance my purposes, my vineyard, so to speak. Secondly, all those who are willing are called. That's key. And receive more than they deserve because of what? Isn't that interesting? By the way, the, the 6 a.m. guys, first guys hired, that they were promised a denarius, did they deserve a denarius? No, it's, he's way, 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 way overpaying them. And by the way, 9 o'clock guys, what'd they get? Denarius. 12 o'clock guys, denarius. 3 o'clock guys, denarius. The last guys worked for one hour, denarius. Wow, that's unbelievable. Isn't it interesting? First shall be last, last shall be first. They were all paid the same. All of them were needy. All of them received grace. And I think what's happening here is that earlier in a previous chapter, the disciples said, well, Lord, we've left all to follow you. What's in it for us? And the sons of Zebedee, their mother, came. And by the way, can I cut a deal with you that you can promise that your, my two sons, one will sit on your left and one will sit on your right because you see they're special privileged guys. And Jesus thought, you know what? I need, I need, to, I need to do some teaching on this. You know what? You guys need to, you know, I appreciate the fact that you're following, but you need to underst understand something. The only reason that you're a disciple is because of my grace. And you're just like everybody else. You're just like everybody else. It is because of grace. This lesson was drilled into me a number of years ago. I was out jogging on our road, and I happened to see we've got a, we had a, a number of two or three, four barn cats. They kept down the rodent population. My wife, Judy, uh, hates any kinds of rodents. She will not even pet a hamster. I mean, she just, that's it, you know. Uh, rodents don't bother me. For me, hate to tell you this, spiders and heights. If I was ever on top of a thousand foot spider, I don't know what I would do. <laughs> so anyway, we had outdoor cats. And I'm out, I'm out jogging, and I see the one cat, uh, the mother cat, uh, about a half mile on the road, and she'd been run over by a car. Man, I came back, I told Judy, I said, well, you know, Misty is no longer with us. So I go to, when I go to the office and I get a telephone call from Judy, and this is what she says to me through my, my cell phone. I'm hearing mewing 
from underneath the deck. You're hearing what? Mewing. Oh, shoot. I bet Misty had a litter. I think so. I can't see because it's dark. But I got a flashlight. Let me get a flashlight. She's on the phone. I got a flashlight. I see, I, I see some back there. I said, well, can you coax them out? I'll try. Okay. All right. All right. Here. Oh, I got one. Joel, their eyes are still closed. <sighs> there, there's two. Oh, here comes a third one. Are there more? Six. <sighs> And their eyes are closed? Yeah, they just had to have been just born. She goes, they're really, really, they, they can't even walk. They're just kind of waddled out, you know. So I call Petco. You know what that is? All right. I call Petco, and I said, we have these little orphan kitties, um, and we don't know, we, we, will, will you take them? And they said, no, you, you can do this. I can do what? <laughs> I said, do I just feed them milk? No, 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 you can't give them cow's milk. It will, it will kill them. Yeah? So what, what, what's your solution? Well, we have formula. You have formula? Yes, we've got kitty formula. Well, so why do I just stick it up my finger? Or no, 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 no. We had these little syringes. You mix up the formula every morning and every evening, and then with syringes, you feed them this kitty formula. All right, so I mean, what? I mean, so that's it. That, no, no, that's not it. Well, what, what, what else is there? Well, they're going to need to learn to go to the bathroom and defecate. Yeah? Well, the way that happens is the mother cat licks their bottom. <laughs> Ma'am, I'm not doing that. <laughs> I'm not. I've got my standards. I'm not doing that. She goes, no, 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 no. She goes, what we have, we've got these little special, we get these little special that what you do is you, you just kind of, you hold them and, and massage their bottoms, and right? And you need to do that twice a day also. Okay. So I come, <laughs> you know, $27 later, I'm coming home, and Judy goes, what in the world do you have in this bag? Don't ask. I mean, I got formula and syringes and these special po potty pads. And so anyway, every morning and every evening, Judy would hold this, these little kittens with their eyes closed. And she would be feeding them milk with syringes on one end <laughs> while I ministered to them <laughs> at the other end. You know what? Uh, lo and behold, these little guys, they, they, uh, they survived and they started coming along and and they would follow us around. They got a little bit bigger, and we finally... And so I'm telling this story, like I'm with you at church during a message one Sunday morning, and this is how I ended. I said, you know what? Um, they were orphans. Uh, they would have perished. And I said, and except 
for our intervention, they would have died. And I said, isn't that what God does for us? And, and I said, by the way, if anybody would like a <laughs> kitten, one of, them had a, one of them had a little broken leg, and so we kind of called him Peg Leg. And, and so uh, afterwards, people lined up to adopt these kitties. And this one lady came over, and uh, she said, I'd like to see the kitties. And I said, well, here they are. Um, and you, you're going to be able to tell which one was peg leg. And she goes, um, I, I want the one with the broken foot, and I'm going to name her Grace. Isn't that what God's done for us? Undeserving walking with a broken leg, destined to die, and God intervenes and says, you know what? I'm going to save you. I'm going to save you. Um, the last I heard, Grace was still alive. Her name was Mary King, the lady that adopted her, and isn't it good to know that Grace is still alive and well for us as well? That's how the kingdom works. I think the third issue, and this is one that I think all of us need a lesson on. When the, uh, when the owner was passing out wages, what happens? Remember? And isn't it interesting, the owner says, just a second, just a second, just a second. You're out of line. I gave you exactly what I promised you. What's your problem? Well, yeah, but yet, wait, 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 wait. It's not your vineyard. Are you saying I can't be generous? Isn't it interesting? Some people come to Christ early in life. Some people come to Christ like I did here at Bayshore Camp as a teenager. Some people come to Christ as a you know, as an adult, some people come to Christ on their deathbed. Isn't it interesting that all of them get saved? Doesn't make any difference. Wages are the same. And this is, I think, what we need to fight against. You and I have got this incredible disease that causes us to compare. And I tell you what, uh, pastors fall prey to it. Really, what size church do you, do you pastor at? How many people are on your staff? Um, the minute we see something happening over here with this person, we think, wait, 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 that, that's not fair. Remember in John 21, when Jesus told Peter, by the way, uh, when you are old, someone else will dress you and lead you to places you do not want to go. 65 years old, by the way. The older I get, the more real that verse is becoming. When you are old, someone else will dress you, and you will go places you do not want to go. And it says, and the, Jesus told Peter this to indicate the kind of death he would die. What is Peter's response? What about him? That doesn't seem fair. What about John? And what does Jesus say? If I want him to remain alive until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. You see, 
as evangelical Christians, we have this idea that God needs to be fair. I'm going to make a statement that you're not going to agree with until you think it through. Here's the statement. God is not fair. God is not fair. If God was fair, there would be no blind people. If God was fair, there would be nobody who's in wheelchairs. If, if God, by the way, God is, God is just and God is good, but he is not fair in terms of I'm going to treat everybody exactly the same. Because you see, something will happen to you that will not happen to him. And your tendency is to look at other people's kids. Well, gee, look at that guy. And Judy and I have done this. Look at that guy. They raised their kids in the church too, and all three of their kids are involved in Christian work. One's a pastor, two are missionaries. We raised our kids, and Judy and I are pretty good people. We raised our kids in the church too, and one of them is a prodigal. How's that work? Gosh, God, that's not fair. Why did this happen to me? Why did I get cancer? Why was my husband taken? Why, why, I look over at them, and boy, isn't it funny how we compare? And I think what Jesus is saying is, look, just like you dealt with your kids differently, you had to discipline them differently. One of your children, you could just look at crooked and go like this, and they would immediately, the other one, you'd look at them and go like this, and they'd laugh at you. And so you had to discipline them differently. That's what, and you might, well, wait a minute, and your kids, this is what your kids will say. That's not fair. And what would you say? Yeah, life is not fair. This is going to hurt me far more than it's going to hurt you. I have to stop this car. Don't think I won't stop this car. Saying all the things that my mom and dad used to say, you know. I'm wondering if this is the main point of his teaching. In the kingdom, the owner of the vineyard, the owner of us all, he can choose to do whatever he wants with anyone. If he wants to strike me down with cancer, so be it. If he wants to take my wife, so be it. I mean, and you hear of tragedies happening to people. You know of people here in this room that some very unfortunate things have happened in their lives. And you think, oh, wow. Well, you know what? It's going to come into all of our lives in one way or the other. It's just not your turn yet. But I've got to trust the one who's sovereign. See? I've got to trust him. Because I can trust him because of his grace. He is a God of grace who has given us far more than we ever deserve. If he would never, want Jesus dying on the cross and, and gifting me heaven, what else do I deserve? I don't even deserve that. If he would never give me another blessing, I would be a rich man indeed. And yet as an evangelical Christian, so often I grumble and complain and spit and bellyache and snort and, well, gee, this isn't fair. You know, gee, how, how come this happened? Because of his grace, I am who I am today, and I deserve nothing. I deserve eternity in hell is what I deserve, see. Everything else is just gravy. Lord, thank you. Thank you. And yet he gives us blessing and kindness and friends and bounty and abundance. I don't see anybody in here who's homeless. I mean, I think, and yet we complain. And I think, man, what a, what a lesson for me. Amen?
Let me pray and then I'll see if you have any questions. Father, we just want to thank you for this hard parable. I thank you, Lord, that you have chosen us. We did not necessarily choose you. And Lord, you invited us to come and to work in your vineyard. And Lord, we trusted you and still do for the wages. And we don't deserve them either. It's more than we deserve. Lord, forgive us for finger pointing at other people and saying, well, how about that guy? What about her? Keep us from critical attitudes, from grumbling, from complaining. Lord, we ought to be the most grateful people walking the planet because of what you've done. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you have any comments or questions that you'd like to fire away? Alan, you're welcome to come if you'd like. Oh, you're walking with the microphone? Oh, right over here. Joel, uh, the first question I had, with the grape harvest on the hillsides, how long does that harvest take? How long does it take to harvest them? I mean, is it one picking, a week of pickings? Uh, yeah. T typically, it's going to be several weeks. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's going to be several weeks. Ripen. It depends on how many workers you've got and how big your vineyard yeah. is. That one vineyard I showed, that, is a, that, is a big, that was a big one. Yeah. And it's very difficult. I'm not even sure. I think a lot of it has to be, be, be by hand. Some of you may know better because it, I think there's vineyards up in this area, aren't there? Some and I'm not drivers. sure if, if they've got mechanical pickers. Difficulty is it, how do you do that at ele elevation? See? Right. So rainy season will, will start coming in later in the year. First time we went to Israel was in January. Don't ever do that. Most people go to Israel in, in, in the spring or the fall, and there's reasons for that. Yeah. Okay, and the second part, my question. It, I had a question, then by the end I think I figured it out, but uh, those workers that have been passed over so many times, those were the workers that were the worst workers. I don't think that's been mentioned. Most likely, they're the ones nobody wanted until the very end. And isn't that a picture of the way the Lord works? Yeah, there's lots sometimes. of implications of that. You know, yeah. what, it, it, had they been, were they there all day long? Maybe they got there later. Maybe they had other things going on. They couldn't. They, they still wanted to work. Can you imagine showing up and standing there at five o'clock, realizing I got I got one hour? Who's ever going to take me? One hour. Nobody's going to hire me. What are you guys doing here? Nobody's hired us. Those are the guys you feel sorry for, and yet they were the first ones, again, the last became first to be paid. Just got interesting implications. Somebody else? Yes, ma'am, right here. Go ahead. Here comes Ellen. I was a social worker for 30 years, and I what really astounded me was it wasn't a handout. It was, you have to come and work for this bit of money. You know, it wasn't like, I will take care of you, but you have to earn it. Yeah. And I think for us, even though we're not judged by our good works, but we do need to earn, and we need to reaffirm ourselves. Work is a blessing. Work is a gift. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. I just want to say that it is so amazing how God took care of the people back then and he still takes care of us today. Amen. She says from her amigo, right? 
Yeah. Yeah. And I'm I'm certainly don't want to become political, but I think we need to be very very careful. Uh, God told in the in the scriptures, anyone who blesses you, He told Abraham, I will bless, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And you look at the nations that curse Israel. Where are they today? Babylonians, boom, gone. Assyrians, gone. Persians, gone. Roman Empire, gone. The Greeks, Alexander the Great, gone. The Third Reich, gone. Isn't it interesting? Those that raise up arms against Israel. And that's why if the United States does not continue to be a friend of Israel, Katie, bar the door. Because history and, and Bible prophecy indicates those who bless Israel stand with them. God will bless. Still continue to bless Israel, but we would still be, you know, yeah, or yeah. The question becomes, how, how how much of the remnant in the U.S. will carry the rest of the nation? Now, one of the indicators we have of that, remember that God, that um, Abraham prayed to God, if you can find fifty righteous men, will you hold your judgment against? Sodom. And remember, God goes, okay, how about 20? Okay, how about 10? Remember, Abraham starts doing this. And by the way, it's the first time we ever see intercessory prayer in the Bible. Very first intercessory prayer was Abraham interceding for Sodom. And finally, God gets down to his, God has his minimums. Is irreducible minimums. He goes, okay, if you can find, what was it, seven, seven righteous men, I will not destroy the city, or whatever it was. Yeah. Which indicates Sodom did not have to be 100% godly for God to withhold judgment. So I guess we can take from that that if God maintains a remnant in the United States of those who humble themselves and pray, born-again believers, Christ followers, God can preserve our nation. Problem is, we, we don't know what the irreducible minimum is. Anybody else? Yeah. I, I don't think that this is necessarily a one-to-one -one correlation, but <clears throat> your presentation of this parable reminds me of something really important, and you said an important word earlier, and that was purpose. And so many young people today struggle with this. I, I know the number of times my kids have asked me or said, I just feel like I'm doing the same thing, the same pointless thing over and over every yeah. day. I just go to school. I come home. I go to school. I come home. I do the same thing for work. But what we have to remember, I think, is that God has designed us to work for him. And I'm always reminded back to what I, I tell my kids, what do the birds do? What do the deer do? You know, they, they glorify God by doing what God designed them to do. And it's the same thing day after day after day. We are working, and we are workers in his vineyard. That's what he's created us to be. When he first set Adam on the earth, Adam's job was to work in God's garden and in his vineyard. 
And I'm reminded of that purpose over and over all the time because it helps me get through each and every single day. Amen. God calls us to a higher purpose. Let me tell you, personal opinion, this is where I think the evangelical church has uh, dropped the ball in the past several generations. We, we have oversold the gospel. Let me tell you what I mean by that. We have told people, if you come forward at camp, you will get heaven, God's going to straighten out your life, you're going to get this, 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 and this. Who wouldn't sign up for that? And so what happens is that kids will come forward, and, or young people, and you did the same thing. And you'll say, man, I don't want to go to hell, and I want, I want this, 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 and this. Wonderful. And then this thing starts going sideways, and they're saying, wait a minute, I didn't sign up for this. And so anymore, one of the things that I do when I, as an evangelist is that I tell people, let me tell you something. You are being called to a life of suffering and service. Who wants to sign up? You are being called to a life of sacrifice. Jesus said, if anyone come, comes after me, let him do what? Deny himself. Brings up the whole gay issue, you know? What, what I'm saying is, there is a part of Christianity where you say, you will deny yourself. Well, I think I may have been born this. That's irrelevant. That's irrelevant. The point of Christianity is, I will sacrifice and, and, and engage in self-denial because I want to be obedient to him. And he has called me not to a life of ease, but to a life of significance. Muslims had figured this out. Why do you think they get so many to volunteer to be suicide bombers? Who would ever volunteer for that? Somebody who realized I'm being, I'm being called to a greater purpose. I, I'm willing to suffer and sacrifice because I'm being called to a greater surface, a purpose. And I think the evangelical church has got to wake up and realize the challenge that we've got to give to our young people is that God is calling you to a higher purpose. And let me tell you something. This is what I say as an evangelist. It's going to be hard. It is going to be hard. When anytime, it's easy to swim downstream. But as a Christian, you're swimming upstream against the culture. And let me tell you something. That will be very difficult. That's going to be hard. And it's going to hurt. However, God will give you the strength, the ability, and a higher calling to serve him. And that will give you tremendous purpose. Look at the Apostle Paul when he lists all those things that happened to him. You know, left for dead, beaten with 40 stripes, you know, twice. I mean, I mean you know, I've been, I've been persecuted by Christians, and, and I've been hungered and starved. He goes and lists that whole litany. Well, who wants to sign up for that? Well, apparently the Apostle Paul did. See? And that's where I think that, that we have undersold it, or we've oversold the gospel. We have to tell people it's going to be hard and it requires sacrifice. See? I don't make it easy anymore. And I said, if you stand up, you may be the only person that stands up. And don't stand up unless you mean it. I got so, so much appreciated last night. Don't stand up unless you mean it. And when we call you forward, this is what it's going to mean. When I came forward at camp 26 years ago, I was in a social fraternity. I had to go back to Ball State and deactivate the fraternity. I had to make all new friends. Fraternity guys would be walking down the street, and they'd see me, my brothers, fraternity brothers, and they'd cross the street, wouldn't even pass by me. I knew there would be a price to pay 
you deactivate a fraternity when you're Greek, you're, you're, you're blackballed. That's the, that is literally the term they will use. And I knew when I came forward with Kent Fischel that night, I knew there will be a price to pay. See, we need to tell our young people that. It is going to be hard. It's going to be hard. But I'll tell you what, you can do it. I wouldn't trade it. God's blessed me because of that. See? Hey, got to preach in there. Sorry. Who else has got a question? Anybody else? Okay, last question. Then we're, it's 10.02. Then we're going to go ahead and wrap it up with a bow. Um, it, it's, it's your um, statement about God being unfair. Yeah. Is it okay? That God is not fair, right? Yeah, so that makes him unfair, correct? He's not fair. He, so no, he's not fair in the way that we define fairness, meaning you, you, you need to, if you did that for him, you need to do that for me. If God were fair and equal, there would be no blind people. Because how can you make him blind but him not blind? That's not fair. Now, he's just and he's good. But I got to believe that he's sovereign. See, his plan for your life is different than, than his plan for my life. So part of it, we have this idea of fairness that everything has to be exactly the same for everybody, and that's just not the case. That's what I meant by that. So that makes him a respecter of a person. I'm, that, that makes him what? A respecter of a person because he does not provide the same promises, basically. Because I, I think for, for me and what I understand from the Bible is that Every promises in the Bible are potentially ours, but not practically ours. But God is not the variable. It's us. Yeah. Every promise in the Bible for believers is, I can claim. Mm -hmm. Now, how he fulfills that in my life may be different for me than for you. Okay, but why can it be like, Lord, if you can bless that person in that area, I know you will do that for me as well. And this is something I apply for my life, you know, yeah. for everything he has done in the Bible. I believe he will. Not only he can, but he will for me. And I think that's what makes a difference. Yeah. Some people, uh, when they came to Christ and they, they were smokers, they smoked. God delivered them like that. Other people have struggled when they came to Christ, have struggled with smoking their entire lives. Afterwards, it's just been awful. Well, God, you're not being fair. Why didn't you deliver me like you delivered Frank over there? It doesn't always work like that. Now, God will provide deliverance, but it's not at the same speed. Right now, we have a prodigal son. Now, I've known other parents, their prodigals have come home. Why hasn't my son come back? God, that's not fair. Well, because God's doing something different in Nathan's life than he was doing in someone else's life. And so I've got, I've got to trust him that he's sovereign and that he, he can work in our lives however he chooses. It's up to him. Peter was crucified upside down. Not John. John died an old man on Patmos. Wait a minute, that's not fair. So Peter had to be crucified upside down? Why didn't that happen to John? Jesus says, wait a minute. If my plan for John is different than my plan for you, Peter, what's that to you? You follow me, and let me deal with kind of how this works out. Is it worth mentioning that John was the beloved and the closest to Jesus? He, 
he was the closest to him. That's too. true. But I don't Is believe that I don't believe that that was the reason that he was not crucified. Okay. Otherwise it's got well, I've got my favorites and mm -hmm. I'll I'll give them blessing but not you know, God's plan for us is different. You know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were delivered from the fiery furnace. So I cannot, I cannot believe that God can deliver me from a fire if I was thrown into a fire through a mission strip. He can, but not everybody was. It says in, the, in Hebrews 11, some were sawn in part. Some died in the flames. Some people were, were, were burned at the stake. So, I mean, it, it, it depends upon what God's will is in those situations, you know. I have a question, yeah. the last one. That's okay. <laughs> um, what, what do you think about when God um, taught us how to pray and he asked us, he told us to pray for his will to be done on earth like it is in heaven? It were, it, in heaven, these, you know, the sickness and all the, like the, the troubles, the poverty yeah. and all these things doesn't exist there. O obviously, it's his will for us to experience deliverance from all these things here because he told us to pray that way do you think that's unjust of him to ask us to pray that way if he cannot provide that kind of life no because i think by by praying for god's will by the way a lot of people will say you should never pray if it's your will because that's a lack of faith that's a bunch of baloney i don't believe that you can pray lord if this is your will you want to know why i can say that jesus prayed that in the garden. Jesus said, I don't want to go to Calvary. You know, if it's up for the vote, I'm voting no. If this cup can pass from me, let it pass from me. I don't want to do it. However, not my will, but thy will be done. Later on, he goes, if this cup cannot pass, if you want me to take the nails, I'm willing to do it. Because thy will be done. And so there's different times we don't know God's will. And so it's okay to pray, Lord, I, I'm just asking for your will to be done. Now, those are hard issues. You know, we're trying to unscrew the unscrutable. So, Ellen. Yeah, and the sovereignty of God. Um, you know, when we read through the Gospels with the parables, but we see when Jesus does healing, I'm always interested in the crowd that is around paying attention because when we pray for God's will to be done in our life and it doesn't happen the way that we expect That's it, exactly right. it might not be. Rarely is it for us. It's because there's others paying attention. It's like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. If they, they weren't saved for themselves. They were saved because somebody else needed the saving and to be seen through them. So sometimes it's just those little, those things that we can grab and grasp and see the sovereignty and trust in his sovereignty, even when it just doesn't make sense. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, said, our God is able to deliver us. But even if. But even if he doesn't. That's right. That's and in case. some situations with believers, God didn't. That's right. See? And I, I don't know which is which. Right. So if I get thrown in a fiery furnace and I'm going to Israel, I can't say, well, God will, God will deliver me from this fiery furnace. Well, he may deliver me, but he may deliver me through death. Yeah. See? And um, a week ago Sunday, my mom died. Oh. And uh, my dad and my sisters and I were sitting around a table at the hospital, and we were talking about what we thought probably was going to happen. 
And my dad had read uh, John chapter uh, 4, the Lazarus story. Is that the right chapter? 12. 12. 11? 11. Chapter 11, 11, verse 4. Yeah. And it says, the sickness will not end in death. And my dad was claiming that verse. He felt he knew that God had given him that verse. But then hours later, my mom had passed away. And so we were wrestling with that verse. And then the Lord revealed the rest of that verse. And it says, the sickness will not end in death. So that, now the purpose, because that's what those two words mean, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And in just a week since my mom has died, the miracles that we have already seen. My dad's brother uh, and um, his daughter, so my cousin, uh, they haven't spoken in years, in years, and they were at the funeral home speaking to one another. We believe that my mom would have stood in line for that one. If it means that this family is going to be reunited, if it means that Jesus Christ can be glorified in this family, it's going to require that you die so that this happens. We would trust that my mom would have said, okay. So be it. Sometimes you have to step back and take a look at some things. I don't like, I don't like that my mom's gone. But man, I love that Jesus is in the middle of something over here. So let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word thank you that you taught us through parables. You didn't do it to confuse us. You did it to teach us. So God, may we trust in you today. God, that you are sovereign and you are providential. And we're not supposed to be able to get it and completely understand it. It is our role to trust it and to live it out. And so God, may we be obedient followers of yours today. Thank you for Joel, your servant and that he has taught us well. In Jesus' name, amen.